When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. Sending their best. It is surely relevant to a conversation about equality that as many as 16% of our species have an IQ below 85. I want to talk to you about that communist tart. They're not sending their best. Policy is everything, but in general, to be elitist, I think the quality climbs up the tree of life. Well, we are at war. It's a cold war. One is the subject of one's genes, and I, I think I like the idea of them being successful genes and winning through to successful puppies. self-government or whether we abandon the American Revolution and confess that a little intellectual elite, a little intellectual elite, a little intellectual elite in a far distant capital can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. Because I'm a lily, because I'm a bleeding heart, and I really believe that Westminster, the intellectuals, the liberal elites just don't get it. Hello and welcome to Navarra FM here on London's finest radio station resonance, 104.4 FM. I am James Butler and I am back on your airwaves after what I think might be my longest break from broadcasting in about a decade, just a couple of months there. But I've been cooking up some things that I'm very excited to share with you. Uh, That intro there with a bevy of gruesome ghouls, eugenicists and racists gives you an idea of what you or I might think when we hear the term elitist. But what if that wasn't the whole story? This week I've been talking with writer and broadcaster Eliane Glazer about her new book, Elitism, A Progressive Defence. Where to start? Well, we know that elitism is definitely a taboo on the left, while, as you could hear in that introduction, for the ultra-right, elite is virtually a synonym for the left. So, what's going on? Let's start with this populist anti-elitism and work from there. Yeah, and elitism is a really provocative word. Um, and I I guess I chose it slightly delibr- deliberately to... It's a kind of a, a breaking through word. So there's a set of kind of woolly, cloudy confusions around these categories that I'm interested in. And if you use the word elitism, it's a way of starting to break up those categories so we can kind of take things apart and, and see what's what. Um but it is a it is an explosive word um, and not popular traditionally on the left. So um, I guess the argument is that there's been this this mass diversion of public anger, which should be directed at the billionaires, the financiers, um, the real economic power in our society and all of that kind of productive um public anger has been diverted onto uh the so-called elites and and anti-elitism has become a really ubiquitous um trope in um, political speeches media commentary you know both both the right-wing media and interestingly i think the liberal media as well um that um, there's so there's been this idea that who, the people who are really powerful in our culture and our society are not these economic elites, but actually they're the intellectual elites. So we have all this anger directed at the cosmopolitan elites, you know, as if metropolitan and cosmopolitan culture wasn't on its knees, you know, theatres closing, newspapers laying off their staff, going online only. Um, you know, the kind of bastions of culture, galleries, museums and so on, as if they weren't having their budget slashed and in fact had been starved of funds over the last few decades. Um, So 
and then we have attacks on the media elite yeah again as if um broadcasters like bbc weren't making all their reporters um apply for their own jobs um slashing um radio budgets you know i love bbc radio and wish it wasn't under so much pressure um and yeah the news media under under great strain as well um and then the liberal elite you know and i love this use of the term liberal elite as if the left had been powerful for the last few decades um so i think there's been this really deliberate conflation of power with intellectual um you know uh, judgment reason accuracy high standards cultural high standards cultural excellence you know discernment um beauty you know and um you know really rigorous journalistic standards you know effective scrutiny and so on and also democratic institutions that i guess we'll come on to that more later on but a real attack on the kind of fabric of democratic institutions on parliament and so on so that um so that we have um you know the the spotlight of public scrutiny is turned away from the inequality that really matters so that's economic inequality and onto um uh you know these kind of fictional powerful figures that are actually i would argue on their knees it does seem to me like you know i read the book that uh democracy is like the the the, the sort of you know, one of the other terms in play that's kind of, you know, it's used on every side of the argument. I think that's maybe like actually an interesting thing to pause on is, is that, you know, the, the, the fact that this conflict is possible in this form, right, these attacks on sort of liberal elites and stuff like that, you know, represents what is actually, I think, historically quite an unusual position for us to be in, which is effectively the universal triumph of democracy, at least kind of intellectually and rhetorically. Right. So, you know, even, you know, this, you know, the joke is often made about sort of the democratic people's Republic of Korea or, you know, wherever. Um, you know, but the point is that it's very, very difficult to legitimate a political order of any kind, however authoritarian and repressive these days, without at least naming it some form of democracy. So even someone like Viktor Orban um, describes himself as, uh, you know, in charge of an illiberal democracy. Uh, and I think that's I think that's really interesting that that this actually, you know, you have this this triumph of democracy on the one hand. Um, and yet, you know, in some ways, it's sort of been robbed of the things that were so controversial about it to sort of 18th century sort of thinkers and earlier. So people who are very suspicious of democracy um, precisely because it was, you know, it might well sort of upend and destroy, uh, you know, institutions or, or, you know, the common, the common good. Um, and so now that it seems to me that there is emerging, I was thinking about this in reading the first couple of chapters in, in your book, you know, that it seems to me that you have emerging this kind of you know, a sort of populist critique of democracy, really, um, as as a kind of elitism, right? But like the traditionalist critique of democracy, you know, the kind of right, traditional right wing critique of democracy, um, you know, that 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 it is, you know, it, you know, which I think we can come back to in a bit, because I think it comes into to some of the arguments. Um, you know, it, it it still seems marginal. So it's interesting to me that these criticisms or, you know, are very powerful, but always have to be mobilised in sort of democratic terms. Right? So they have to use the terms of democracy. They're, so actually, when they're having this, these feelings about, you know, uh, uh, you know, liberal elite or the, you know, the hatred of liberalism has to be, mo- you know, it has to be cast in these terms of, uh, you know, of, um, uh, of democratic, you know, disenfranchisement. And ends, you know, the book ends with an argument on, on a sort of new good elitism. And I suppose the sort of traditional, you know, or, or the sort of instinctive left-wing uh, response to that would be to say, well, this is like um, a like colourless green idea sleeping furiously, right? It's, it's something that can be verbally constructed, but in practice could never exist. What do you say to that? So I think, yeah, I think the left has become very squeamish about, you know, in the cultural realm, um, they the the left have come to accept the de facto, um, uh, you know, confusion of high standards, cultural high standards on the one hand, and social privilege on the other. So the fact is that those things have become bound up together in our culture, 
Um, but I would argue that that the reason for that is is kind of neoliberal, you know, closing off um, modes of entry to all but the the well resourced. I um, mean, kind of we're kind of familiar with those mechanisms um, that have um, kind of de-democratized culture. But I think the same mechanisms have been at, at play in politics. So um, you know, it's kind of I think we kind of think because we have this. Um, automatic view of progress you know something that john gray's criticized we tend to assume that actually doors are being opened the things are being opened up to um and diversified different kinds of people but actually it's interesting that that in terms of um mps in britain the proportion of those drawn from manual a manual work background has actually decreased since the 70s so and we know about the kind of yeah the sort of old etonian cabal that's grown up around um power and so on so um, things have become very centralised and professionalised. Um, so, 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 you know, in terms of of where we're at, circumstantially, um, our democracy has become thoroughly, um, you know, become a closed shop, the revolving door, professionalisation, the spad route, and you know, Oxford PPE graduates. You know, we're familiar with the characteristics, but I think the thing that we're not so used to doing is is separating out the the demographics or the people who hold those positions with what we think about the positions themselves. And as you say, I, I kind of touched on that in my last book when I was talking about, um, you know, this tendency on the left to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater that just because um, we've got this bunch of right-wing old Etonians running the country, um, that actually stops us thinking really critically and carefully about what we think about political institutions and um, democracy as a system per se, which I think you're right to, to, try, and, to, to, to try and do that. Um, so, I mean, in terms of, you know, what democracy is, I mean, I th- you're absolutely right. Like, it's so ironic that the point at which democracy triumphed as a system across the world was precisely the moment at which it was drained of substanti- substantive meaning and became a kind of a, yeah, sort of PRE window dressing, this term that's used now, you know, to, to really mean the exact opposite, you know, so you have that in post-Brexit commentary about populism that um, attacks on on parliament and, and representative democracy is a kind of direct, you know, right-wing undermining of... of um, of the institutions of democracy that would actually um, you know, rep- represent people better, so um, better than they're doing. So um, yes, yeah, so I think, but I think that I think we just have to unpack these terms. Like democracy, you know, obviously it means rule by the people, but um, it's uh, come to be this kind of empty signifier. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there are democratic checks and balances. You know, discussions behind closed doors, the deliberation you mentioned, these kind of norms, traditions, you know, codes of, um, of you know, committees that committees use and so on. Those kinds of, um, you know, perhaps e- expertise informed, professionalised, normative ways of doing politics that um, that seem um, aloof and, and elite. But um, the alternative is is kind of fascist populism. So... Um, I think there's a paradox at the heart of democracy in terms of the things that seem elite but actually protect our best interests um, and the kind of populist hollowing out of democracy. You know, it's, it's fascinating that there is this sort of almost kind of, you know, evanescent paradoxical knot at, at the heart of, of this issue. And it, I think it accounts for some of the stuff that's you know, so slippery in the discourse around populism, in the discourse around... Uh, you know these current forms of sort of you know these these sort of assaults on on the possibility of deliberation, um, and it, it seems to me that so, so you know obviously that question is in some ways an obvious one that that you know defensive elitism you know it will always have you know around it this kind of question mark about whether it's anti democratic in itself to even talk about um, you know an elite of any kind. Uh, because you know the, the the easy thing to say is like well what you're talking about is aristocracy right I mean, in its classical sense ariston meaning the best you know ruled by the best um, <laughs> which has obviously no actual connection to actually existing aristocracy in in any way you know it's almost as if 
there has been a sort of tacit division, uh, you know, in, in, in the way that our society is structured, where you give over kind of culture, some of the caring professions, certainly kind of education, certain tertiary education, to what is a kind of effectively liberal worldview. And then the people who get to wield the actual power, economic power, political power, um, that's where the right you know, gets its way in. And so so in that sense, it, it does. And, and so and I think you can see this and, you know, you look at teacher training and stuff like that. And, and you do, I think, very effectively and very funnily at various points in the book sort of go through, you know, the, the absorption of, uh, you know, arts council uh, funding criteria in these sort of, you know, rather rote uh, performances of diversity and inclusion and stuff like that, but but that seems to me to say that you know that 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 that's where this stuff is acceptable. It's acceptable in the cultural sphere. It's acceptable there because you know, partly because it doesn't have actually any kind of broad structural effect. But you know it's accepted that you know we've given that to you. That's where you're supposed to be. And then you know actual politics. Well, that's that's the domain of you know our sort of neo-Darwinian masters or or, or, or whatever. Um, but so so in some ways it's not. It's it's not surprising, I think, it, that that when you get to political conflict over this stuff, it it it, it sort of turns into cultural because culture is is you know people look at uh, you know people who are raging against you know lots of these values find them expressed in kind of cultural institutions, but that's an expression uh, of the way our politics has been sort of divided, you know, and carved up, uh, you know, rather than there being this kind of all encompassing. Uh, you know, liberal hegemony. But these are the institutions that are closer to people's lives. Westminster and the city and various things like that, you know, and for those of us who live in a city, you know, we see rich people all the time. We can see, uh, you know, I mean, I don't go to Chelsea very often. (laughs) But, you know, like, you know, I'm aware of there being, you know, massive, massive um, divisions of wealth. But even for me, you know, you know. Admittedly, I, you know, I work in them, so it's not surprising that they're close to me. But you know, even for me, the, the kind of the institutions of social reproduction and culture are much closer to me than the institutions of power, and therefore it can feel. I can see how it could feel at times that there is this sort of, you know, almost you know, universal, uh, you know, ideological grip, and it just seems to me an amazing contrast. Yeah, it it really is, and um, you know, sometimes. Um, profiteering and you know obscene um, wealth is yeah it's kind of this cognitive dissonance that we walk past these glass and steel buildings and these luxury flats and we're meant to somehow hold in our minds the fact that the government is also saying there is no money in the pot for culture education health and so on um, and and I think yeah, and, and I think perhaps that cognitive dissonance is kind of shored up by a sense of powerlessness that even if we did know we wouldn't be able to change it. So let's just concentrate on you know MPs' expenses or um, democratizing the national theatre or you know getting het up about BBC not playing the national anthem or whatever it is. So, but I think that. I think there's a real problem that the that these cultural and educational arenas become these kind of symbolic yeah they become symbolic theaters where we play out issues of inequality and power um that really bear no relation to where power and money is actually operating and I think there's a real re- risk that um the left gets caught up in this um, in terms of yeah, just very prominent discussions about representation, which are important, but in the big scheme of things, um, begin to dominate in a way that conceals where the real power lies. And yeah, and as you mentioned, the these cultural um, institutions themselves, you know, partly they have to demonstrate inclusivity and impact. You know, they have, they spend cultural practitioners spend vast portions of their working lives filling out these forms demonstrating you know outreach you know audience interactivity um you know engaging unusual audiences and so on which is all great but um it's it's a kind of you know and they have to do it to get any funding at all but it's there is a kind of internalization of this loss of confidence that that um 
that we feel we're unable to make a, a trenchant case for, you know, um, yeah, well-funded journalistic scrutiny, um, high-powered, high sta- you know, excellent arts, you know, beauty, you know, discernment, you know, these. So it becomes really hard to, to do that because, because those um, qualities have become um, bound up with these ideas of power and privilege in this um, in 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 this um, uh, in in this incorrect way. So um, yeah, and I think you know, and I think that that's that's what the culture wars is about. You know, the, so the right has deliberately shifted the ground away from economics and that the economic fault line. Um, and that as a kind of frontier of opposition, and onto you know this cultural frontier, um, which is basically about the educated versus the non-educated, the culturally literate versus the you know city versus rural, and so on. And these these um, divisions of identity are incredibly um, you know they're incredibly divisive in terms of populations and, and eroding solidarity between different kinds of people, but they are also an attack on intellectualism on cultural value because because in in this kind of populist binary the you know um the intellectual the the highbrow uh, reason accuracy you know the rule of law um high culture these become illegitimate categories in this populist binary so so you can say oh well you know we're shifting away f- from a kind of left right binary to a sort of you know anywheres versus somewheres binary or whatever but you know, that is absolutely Ill- illegitimate and <laughs> um, as a new kind of democratic political fault line or opposition because one side of that is always implicitly um delegitimated and i think that's I, I, that's really one of the the things that I um, that I'm most against. So the book dwells heavily on that shuttling back and forth between culture, cultural politics, culture war, and formal politics, and this connection between aesthetics and politics heavily lent on by the right might actually tell us something. So we should follow the thread through aesthetics back into politics, and along the way we might ask what's happened to serious criticism. I mean, I think I think that that's you know it's it's such a you know I I um I, I think probably unsurprisingly to listeners um hugely interested in culture and my my tastes my tastes are pretty Catholic and and diverse but um you know I, I like to consider the entire span of culture open to me and I you know regardless of what um. You know, I, I learned to read, you know, I enjoy reading from the public library system, which is not a thing that many people can say today. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's you know, the, these institutions, I think, are hugely, hugely important. And I think your point about the, the role of criticism, um, you know, it seems to me essential um, in, in multiple ways, you know, not only to, to distinguish the good from the bad, but actually to say that, that, that there is something important about the act of interpretation and something profoundly civilizing about i'm trying you know trying to not use these these words which are sort of swear words on the left but i should follow your example and and use them um you you know but but something profoundly civilizing about it i don't mean that in the way that you know that 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 it can be mistaken for that there is this that there is a great canon which consists of you know western you know white men uh, and the and the act of civilizing someone is to become familiar with it. Um, this is this is not the case, it, you know. I mean, there there is a long, you know, the the entire history of you know Western culture. You know, you go right the way back to I know, Heraclitus and Parmenides and Empedocles, pre-Socratic philosophers who have these enormous contacts with you know other cultures and are fascinated by them, all the way through to the Romantics who are always looking about you know whatever, all of that. Um, but the act of criticism itself is not just about distinguishing the good from the bad, but you know, understanding that these works have important effects on us and you know, tame what can be otherwise a, you know, a, you know, our own rather barbarous instincts. It says, you know, I mean, this is the reason you know, lots of people enjoy Greek tragedy, for instance. It brings you face to face with and forces you to confront these questions of violence and difficulty, or at least it can do. And I think that also is, you know, I mean, there, there's, I think there's, you know, so it seems to me there are sort of two questions that circulate around this, really. It, you know, one is that the, say, the, the, the kind of historic 
interest in high culture that comes from uh, ordinary people. And I'm thinking here of the the Rose book that, that you quote, but also someone like Richard Hoggart, who writes about it in Uses of Literacy as well. Uh, it is that these, what people were interested in, and, and, and we know this from the records of sort of libraries that, that they used and, and, you know, whatever, you know, these, these were people who were picking up Hardy rather than Joyce, right? And who were interested in the kind the, the, the sort of mainstream traditional canon, you know, you know, and, and, you know, quite astonishingly, in some ways, you have people reading Lucretius when they come home from a, a you know, an eight hour, 10 hour day. I mean, it's really kind of astonishing. Um, before television <laughs> but 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 you know like so th- these are people who are very interested in, in the traditional canon you can make sort of arguments about that that these are things that had been guarded by people who were who were genuinely powerful and and rich and whatever um but it seems interesting to me that 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 actually you know i think for, for lots of us today you know we look back and we're interested in the kind of avant-garde part of the canon certainly in the 20th century as much as we are in the sort of traditional more realist writers and stuff like that and 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 what's interesting to me is there obviously seems to have been some sort of similar distrust of kind of these sort of newfangled experimental, uh, you know, rather strange uh, boundary pushing works. Um, and so it just seems to me that the, the, the invocation of, of this sort of cultural, you know, culturally interested working class is in both important, but also has that kind of very interesting doubleness to it. Yeah, exactly. And I, and yeah, so so going back, I mean, yeah, the the book is kind of a defense of the humanities really um against the sort of dominance of STEM. You know, and I I love science and science is science is under attack as well actually by the anti-elitist, you know, um climate change being a sort of elite conspiracy and so on. Um but the kind of scientism that um yeah, that sidelines the humanities is really dangerous. And I think, you know, thinking about walking into a public library and you have all these computer terminals which are trumpeted as these great portals of democratisation that all these kids can access information through the por- these through the screens. And yet, of course, digital technology is the biggest, you know, agent of kind of astroturf um, uh, tech elite, you know, monopolies of Silicon Valley get propagated via this rhetoric of the grassroots um, and so on, which is, comes through science and technology. So so I'm really wanting to recover and, and defend the value of the humanities, both, yeah, as, as um, in terms of, um, you know, uh, curating and propagating what's beautiful and, and true, but also, as you say, um, being critical and raising difficult questions um, and criticising the status quo. So you look back to this tradition of working class intellectualism, which is, yeah, it's one of the sections of the book because, you know, we look around us now and we see that all these actors and uh, musicians and writers are uh, privately educated and so on. You have this great narrowing that's happened Mm. um, in the last few decades, you know, in the face of the rhetoric of of diversity and democratisation. Um, and and it's very easy to forget this really vibrant tradition of working class um, cultural production, consumption, and and criticism. Yeah, and these incredible stories that Jonathan Rose um, recovers in his from his archival research in in the intellectual life of the British working classes of these you know a charwoman in Liverpool who knows more about the classics than the average British graduate today. So. Um, really extraordinary tradition that's that's been lost in this muddling of of quality and privilege that we tend to to do now. But but yeah, there's this interesting question about what they were reading, and I think you know I think Jonathan Rose, you know, he liked the fact that they were reading the greats, you know, and and actually, um, yeah, there's a really interesting question about the canon, I think, and um, yeah, and and you know. But there's this kind of uncritical view of the canon of, of the greats, which, you know, in some ways I subscribe to because, you know, on that list is our, you know, Shakespeare and the classics and these wonderful texts that are, really are genuinely great. Um, but um, 
But I think it's also important to remember that there's, there was a tradition of working class avant-garde as well. And John Kerry, in his book, you know, he's, he's very, very critical of elitism <laughs> that I'm defending um, in his book, um, the, um, what's it called? Intellectuals and the Masses. Intellectuals and the Masses, yeah. Arts, I think, is its sequel. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, and it's kind of so curious. There's just so many examples of these kind of elite anti-elitists. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, from right-wing populist politicians in government today to these figures uh, like Kerry, who I, who I think is fantastic in many ways, by the way, um, in his literary criticism. Mm. But this kind of curious, um, uh, sort of cri- very kind of um, angry critique of, of cultural elitism, which which yeah. glosses over, yeah, the, the, the working class... Um, artists but you know Henry Maud, D.H. Lawrence mm. is a really lively tradition that you can uncover but also appreciation of, of um, avant-garde arts you, know, you could look at architecture and brutalism and um, estate architecture post-war you know avant-garde theatre and um, so on in communist Russia I mean there's so many examples mm. so but I, and I think but I think yeah so I think that and I think that the avant-garde art is kind of conservative in some ways in the ways that um, Carey might criticise, you know, keeping the uneducated out through its use of, you know, obscurantism and, t- and so on. But but there is something also valuable about avant-garde art in its kind of political critique. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that I think that's essential. I mean, I think the thing that that always strikes me about these arguments about canons is this this idea that that canons were never contested is you know the, the idea that it has been static and only now we're we starting to contest them i think the current contestation of you know who and what should be in the canon is a hugely important thing but it is a thing that has happened continually um you know it's just that now uh you know there are more people involved in the conversation it's a good thing um you know what worries me is when when you know it breaks down you know the the, the question of of and I, I think this is a rule that applies across the board, and it's why there's such an interesting connection between aesthetics and politics in your book, is that when the contest becomes, you know, when it shifts from, um, you know, the act of contestation about what is important and reflects us as a culture and tells us things that are sometimes difficult to bear but might help us do it or confront us with or say something profound or, you know... Uh, you know, going from that and, and, you know, asking, you know, what works really do do that, you know, um, and what, you know, you know, where, where do we find sort of really extraordinary beauty that stands out from, you know, the, the, the field of, 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 of the contemporary, you know, going from that to saying, well, actually the, the, the very ability to make a canon at all is simply, you know, an act of, of, of discrimination in its bad sense. Uh, that that's when I sort of jump off the ship and say, like, actually, no, I don't go down there because actually, you know, there is such a thing as good writing and bad writing. Like, and, you know, a lot of stuff that gets called good writing is often bad writing. <laughs> um, that's right. And uh, yeah, and and, um, and that kind of wholesale kind of seeding of that entire question of aesthetic discernment to the right is is really damaging because... Yeah, why should yeah? Why should the right? Why should the late Roger Scruton have a monopoly on 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 you know what is beautiful and good and true, and um, uh, and also yeah, it's just it, it just also then seeds the ground to yeah the kind of the tech monopolies you know like this you'll love that you know um, but you, everywhere I think you're just seeing this this confusion because because the tech monopolies are trying to water down culture and and um, and dethrone. Gatekeep, so-called gatekeepers, um, you know, the A and R people, the you know, the critics, the people who who really have a professional um, ability to kind of make these judgments, you know, and it's, you know, we've all been sold apart, you know, in terms of um, the ability of citizen journalists to kind of you know um, take down governments from their armchairs after working you know twelve hour day or whatever. Um, so, um, but I think that the problem is is that. Yeah, on on the left, we we get ourselves into a muddle um, as well, and so you know the whole rise of yeah self publishing, fan fiction, you know all these things, which you know have wonderful aspects to them, but also kind of register a a sense of confusion and unease around these questions of of what's what's better than something else, um, and uh, and and ultimately 
you know, I think that 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 le- that yeah, and it, you see it in schools and edu- and universities. I think this is you know the, the the so I was trying to think about how I would sum up the the sort of argument that that you're making here, you know, that and, and that connection between the sort of the kind of aesthetic conflict and political conflict, and it's you know, I, th- I thought along these lines, it's like you know that. The, the contestation of norms is is no bad thing, right? Like we're for the contestation of norms, like contesting norms. And this is where I think the liberals in the states go wrong. By the way, they, you know, they say like, "Oh no, Trump is attacking the norms." It's like, well, you know, so so did civil rights. And civil rights attacked the norms that it was fine to segregate black people from white people. That was good. That was good norm contestation. It's what politics is about. It's about saying, well, this thing that we've taken for granted is bad, actually. We should no longer do it. We should do it differently. So it's the contestation of norms, which I think is a good thing and can be conducted in that way, versus the destruction of the possibility of the normative entirely. Right? And so you know, that's when it comes in saying like, well, actually, you're, you're you saying that this is good or bad is, you know, not possible or it's wrong. And it's the same time, you know, it has its kind of, you know, it, on the right, it's done cynically, right? It, it comes from, you know, the, 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 the possibility of making meaning at all, or the possibility of holding anyone to any standard that isn't self-enrichment and self-advancement is impossible. You know, but on the left, it has this, you know, rather, you know, sad version, which is, which is simply a loss of confidence in saying, you know, that making any of these, you know, judgment calls at all is is somehow sort of discriminatory and actually, you know, uh, the the only future is one of sort of self-flagellation. That's, <laughs> That's right. really bad. That's not a good way to do politics. That's right. Yeah, we'll jump off our pedestals, you know, right-wing populists. You don't have to push us. It's fine, you know. And mea culpa, we have failed, etc. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so many of these institutions have failed, you know, or have, have, have been imperfect. You know, all these, the big institutions, you know, Parliament, um, big broadcasting corporations, um, big newspapers, they've all been imperfect. And I think that, you know, what's happened is you get this grain of truth to the right wing populist attack. Um, and, you know, and by the way, they've often been imperfect because they've been starved by f- funds by the these kind of forces of neoliberalisation. Um, so not able to to perform to the standards that the public expect of them. And those standards get, those expectations get raised ever higher as the public realm and the cultural realm beca- become downgraded and, and um, disapproved of and, and debased and so on. So you get this kind of perfect storm, really, where this reasonable critique of these institutions becomes, as you say, this kind of wholesale, let's just burn it all to the ground. And I just think what we've got to say is, okay, well, let's just talk about quality. Let's talk about educational standards. You know, do we want to have exams at all? You know, do we want to even have entry requirements for university? Why don't we just do it um, by lot? You know, Oxbridge applications by lot, sortition. Um, get get rid of grades. You know, let's have a conversation about that. Um and, uh, and, and, and again, with democratic institutions, you know, if we like Bernie Sanders, you know, um, he was a very, you know, strong leader in terms of his ideological platform. Um, you know, he's an old fashioned politician in, in a lot of ways, a figure from the 70s and 80s, you know, kind of really setting out your, your, um, uh, your agenda from, from a podium and, um, you know, and, and that was incredibly um, popular because it articulated this kind of really resonant um, analysis of you know economic um, injustice. So, but so okay. So we like Bernie Sanders. So what is it? You know, if he got in power, let's do a thought experiment. Would that be would we be okay with that with those democratic institutions now? You know, same with Corbyn if he hadn't been completely stymied by anti-Semitism and Brexit. Would that be okay? You know, so then we can really start to have a conversation about these institutions. Parliament, this great bastion, you know, we, okay, we want to build a shed in the garden, you know, where we do kind of citizens, you know, assemblies and deliberation, fine. But what are we going to do with the big building? Like, what do we think about it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it's those conversations I want to be having. I mean, I, I think it's interesting, you know, the, the, this question of, 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 of the relationship between sort of Science, which is often invoked by kind of people on on the alt right, and particularly sort of Jordan Peterson style fanboys, and its relationship to culture, uh, and the sort of scientism, which is you know it's this tremendously kind of interesting move on the right, which I think you know is in the mix here, is in you know is you know which says you know uh, we 
yeah, all the old certainties are dead, right? Um, art cannot, uh, you know, art is you know a lie or you know a, you know a con or whatever. Uh, it, it's science and particularly evolutionary psychology, a bit of an absurd field in some ways. Um, evolutionary psychology, which which gives meaning to our lives. Um, except for the fact that it's very clear for a lot of these people that evolutionary psychology doesn't give meaning to their lives. And so that, you know, that this, this kind of like, you know, on the one hand, you know, it justifies all these sort of you know, particularly sort of misogynist and sexist positions, I think, on, on the alt-right, you know, men are what really matter and women are there, there to make babies or whatever. Um, and this is, you know, trotted out you know, for, for this, for some reason or another, or, or, or you know, the, the, there's always some evolutionary psychology reason that, for, for something to be true. But actually the kind of, you know, it's a really insufficient ground for meaning making, right? Like the, the stuff that makes meaning doesn't, you know, isn't there actually. Um, and so it seems to me that there's a, this kind of huge rage, which is like inadequately contained by this very, very flimsy structure of meaning making. And actually that's the moment in which I do go back and say like, well, actually one of the things that you know art has done uh, you know not always and it's not the only thing that art does and doesn't always do it very effectively but but that it tries to do is deal with these kind of very deep issues around mortality and rage and you know the way in which your desires can actually be very bad for you and that stuff is you know so in, i always think of it in the kind of Anne carson's preface to her translations of Greek tragedies so, you know um you know uh, 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 well, you know, why, did the head, why does a headhunter tear off, uh, you know, uh, someone's head because he is full of rage? Well, you know, why is he full of rage? Because he's full of grief. Like that, you know, and that's why tragedy exists. And this is these astonishing things which, you know, that, that is the form of meaning making. It doesn't happen through, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, talking about you know, why women like lipstick because of lobsters or something. Completely. And I, and I think you can look, well, going back to the evolutionary psychology thing, I mean, you can really look back to that whole tradition, and I and I really think that it, that tradition's got a lot to answer for this because I think it came out of you know the scientists will hate me for saying this, and I, and I love scientists, so you know, but I think there's an envy that came out of science towards art because art, the arts have this cultural capital, and you see this in C.P. Snow, you know, the two cultures. Mm. Well, it's not really an even-handed binary actually because what he's saying is that you know the arts should capitulate to the rigor of science. And you've seen this all through, you know, why and then more scientists on arts review programs and so on. So so I do think that arts have this cultural capital, you know, the, it's all they've got left, you know, I mean, really, they're on their last legs, but at least they've got that. And and, and yet that's what, you know, um, you know, and there's this kind of nexus of, you know, markets and machines and, you know, these kind of determinist forces, you know, algorithms, Silicon Valley, you know evolutionary biology and so on and i do see them working in lockstep in terms of eroding the human capacity for making decisions you know um curating you know um what is the best and the most challenging and most interesting and the non-instrumental you know the non um yeah profit making and and so on and, and you know and i and i see I see elite culture, good elite culture, as being a way to resist, you know, the, those kind of determinist, instrumental demands of the of work culture. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, I think the the. So I, I think I, I want to ask a question, which is kind of about which sort of tracks us back on onto the road of democracy, actually. Uh, and and it's sort of it's about you know extending the sort of like daring to step into the the bits that are taboo. Right. So and it's about, you know, so so obviously defenses of elitism historically are connected to, you know, reactionary modes of, of kind of anti-democratic thought. Right. And so standard critique of democracy you know, as a concept is that, well, there are there's someone who knows better somewhere. Right. So this is Plato. This is Plato who says, like, you know, philosophers should be kings because they know better than ordinary people, etc., etc. There are lots of variants on that you know, down the line. <clears throat> but you know actually the you know the the the, the big kind of, the, the way that the, you know that so this gets called the kind of standard critique of democracy but it's only the standard critique of democracy among intellectuals actually more often in the course of you know kind of political history the critique of democracy has usually been 
that it's something imposed from the outside by intellectuals who have like these weird abstracted rationalist notions about the way society should be run instead of acceding to natural hierarchies and you know and things like that so so actually like it's this funny inversion that that kind of happens through, throughout political history and i suppose i've been you know it's you know I'm, I'm very interested in this kind of you know sudden resurgence of all forms of sort of reactionary thought and it's not just the growth of the sort of alt-right, which I think in some ways is very distracting. I think in some ways you have people confronting something that is actually very hard, which is that actually, you know, you look at contemporary political conditions and actually it makes it very hard to believe in, you know, progress in any kind of simple sense, right? Um, That, you know that I think that the left can rely on too too easily some sometimes. Yeah, and sometimes that can go as far as saying, you know, like, oh, we need to go back to the sort of that that weirdly sort of Aristotelian view of history where you know, history proceeds in cycles and, you know, it, it's a rise and decline and rise and decline, right? And then we're in, in the declinist moment. Yeah, that may be true, it may not be true. I think there's something that that's kind of worthwhile thinking about it, and particularly in relation to actually the way in which you make things endure through crises but i just you know i just want to say that there are these kind of you know around the kind of historic defenses of elitism there are these sort of forms of anti-democratic thinking and one you know and i you know there's a the kind of the classic the classic taxonomy of them comes from a thinker called hirschman oa hirschman ao hirschman i can't remember which which order the initials are in but anyway like he says that he says there are these kind of the three ways it breaks down one one is a critique of democracy that says to democracy is is perverse right so it's perversity critique um which is that actually any attempt at kind of democratic change only worsens the thing it seeks to actually fix so it's like hobbes says this machiavelli says it to to another degree you know burke is the the classic burkean critique of the french revolution is like actually you know by again this rationalist armed doctrine you upend society and actually whoops turns out you've killed everyone or, or whatever right and actually you should go back to you know, subjugating yourself to the church or whatever. But it seems to me there's a kind of 20th century version that you can do from the left with with kind of Adorno or someone like that and say like, well, you know, what you say here is actually there isn't a living tradition uh, that binds human beings together, which you know, for Burke was the church and established religion. So that, no, that's not true. What you actually have is a, a mass of kind of atomized individuals. But that means that the mass of atomized individuals is sort of, ripe for kind of majoritarians and tyrants and demagogues and stuff like that which i think is actually a very kind of potent critique of 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 democracy and its successes um you know and i think it's a very you know one that left kind of finds itself walking on swampy ground when it gets into and goes like oh let's reverse out of here but there's something very powerful to it and the other you know there are other arguments as well i think you know the hirschman's other two categories are, are futility um and and sort of jeopardy so the futility one is like the classic italian fascist argument right so which is you know, whereas whereas the people who talk about perversity think that society is very fluid um, and and is subject to, and can be changed very rapidly and therefore any kind of just or peaceful society is a fragile achievement right the futility people say um oh well actually hierarchy is you know the emergence of an oligarchy uh, and a hierarchy is inevitable and natural, uh, and therefore anyone who does democracy or talks about or employs democratic rhetoric is either lying to you or is deluding themselves. Um, again, a very potent, very radical critique, um, you know, very awkward and uncomfortable one, because I think very often we, we can feel it, right? We, it can feel like there's a, there's a germ of truth in it. Um, uh, and so there, there are these two kind of very contrasting but very radical critiques and then the third one for Hirschman is something called, called sort of jeopardy which is which is basically kind of a, a watered down and sort of less radical version of both as says like basically the projects of democratic reform do often endanger things we've already achieved there are kind of conflicting desires you know um and ultimately it leads to the triumph of mediocrity um and I think again this is something that is unthinkable for a lot of people on the left but like it does seem that it has been certainly in the 20th century very powerful critique in the arms or or, or in the hands of um the right and you know it, it, the left has been unable to deal with it because it doesn't want to think about the ways in which actually this can be the case that all of these you know all of these say something that you know in some forms of and in some cases you know are observably true 
Mm. Um, and I just, and I wonder if you have a sense of, you know, the, the, how you can think about elitism without kind of heading down one of those paths. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, they're really interesting critiques. And I think the problem we're talking about democracy is that it's never clear whether you're talking about an an idea, you know, a theoretical system or an actually existing set of practices, you know, with all their calcifications and um, ossifications and, um, yeah, malfunctionings, um, which is what we've got now. So, yeah, it's really important, I think, to distinguish between the system as it is in theory and, and how it is in practice. Um and yeah, to so avoid that baby and bathwater problem. But yeah, in terms of, of democracy as a system, I mean, it is really difficult. I think, I mean, I think that, yeah, the, the, iron, the iron law of oligarchy that you mentioned before this conversation, that this, this tendency for all forms of representation, of representative democracy to, to, to tend towards the, the centralization and the accumulation of, of authority and power, or certainly power, um, in the representatives, um, is, I think that's, that holds a lot of water, but I think that, you know, and, and, and I think the German sociologist who first articulated it, his name, I can't remember. Michels. Right. Yeah. Um, him, you know, he, he said, you know, uh, you know, cause I, I, I looked this up after, after you mentioned it, it's really super interesting. He said that History is it something like history proves that any attempts, any prophylactic attempts to to reverse that mm. inevitable trend, you know, are futile. Um, and, you know, and I think that, you know, there's been a really lively left wing critique of both representative democracy and the state, you know, in terms of this concentration of power and and kind of top down paternalistic um, sort of out of touchness. But um, I think it's just, hard, it's just we have to separate all these things out because actually the things that have the forces that have have distorted um, democracy as it's as it is an existing system are the forces of neoliberalism. They're not actually often flaws within the democratic system itself. Um, and I and you know and I think it's a shame for the left to give up on representative democracy because of um, because of that that um, those forces. Uh, which are not its fault, um, uh, either the left or democracy's fault. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I, I was exploring citizens' assemblies for this thing I was writing for, for Prospect magazine. And so I, I went to visit this experiment in deliberative democracy in Belgium, <laughs> which is super interesting. And... Um, and I think there's a lot, a lot to be said for citizen assemblies, you know, as an alternative to representative democracy. And, that, you know, and we hear a lot about them in all sorts of contexts. Um, but the thing that I took away from it was actually, well, firstly, that it's a kind of, it becomes a sort of um, a, a performative exercise. It becomes like PR, PR for politics. So, you know, you know, like someone's cousin mm. down the road went to one of these meetings and they thought, actually, you know, these politicians are actually trying to do, you know, do good for the country and so on. Um, they're not so different from us after all. So it functions in that kind of word of mouth, um, uh, you know, reputational uh, recovery kind of way. But um, but it's really hard to replicate it at scale. And, um, and actually, it becomes an argument for expertise because these citizens assemblies are you know really really carefully you know spending hours deliberating these um these kind of you know um often quite technocratic questions they're informed by experts um and you know i mean people aren't stupid like if you sit in a room and you read for 12 hours and you read all the reports you're going to come to a pretty good sense of what should be done so um but that's yeah. But it becomes. It, I guess they citizens' assemblies comes out of a critique of elitist politics. But it actually ends up reinstating some of that um, validation of, of expertise and knowledge that it sort of started off by critiquing. Um, I mean, look, elites. The word comes from e elegere mm -hmm. to elect. So 
it's like you had this original concept where you need these representatives because not everyone wants to turn up to meetings all the time. It's boring and you don't have time, you're at work and so on. Um, or, you know, you have a life. You have a life. <laughs> Job, family, etc. So you delegate this decision making. Um, and um, But then, yeah, your representatives then accumulate power. And yeah, how do you... Yeah, so I guess going back to the original definition of the word allows us to interrogate whether you know it would be all right if they hadn't accumulated that power over time last question um you know your, your final chapter in your book is um you know a new uh, you know in defense for good elitism i think um and, and you know i'm going to ask a rather unfair question in a way because you know you, you you're at pains to point out that actually like you know it's quite hard to sketch out what what that would mean in practice because you have to disentangle it from so many things, but you were, you're saying, you know, there are, you know, there are important questions that the left actually needs to consider and that it's shied away from considering. But I will put you on the spot and say, you know, okay, we're, we're, we've, you know, the left, you know, the left in this country thinking of, of that as being, you know, the, the socialist left of the Labour Party and those to its left. You know, very, very kind of broad heuristic. Um, the left just lost an election right and big black cloud there but the silver lining is that it allows us time to think about and adjust our ways of approaching politics but so so you know tell me what we should be thinking about or what you think we should be changing in our approach to politics over those four years let's say that this is the opportunity we have to take on those questions that you think you know that, that you're putting forward in this book what do you want the left to change in the way it approaches things yeah, so I think three things. One is to respond to the culture wars and the way that the right has so skillfully re-engineered the political debate in this country by shifting the ground to culture. So so that means reclaiming the economic fault line. So really articulating um, a productive economic opposition between um, economic interests, you know, the 1% versus the 99%. But, you know, I think... These slogans and the terminology becomes so rapidly toxified through right-wing co-option and other forces that we need to constantly be thinking about how we can reframe economic opposition um, in a productive way that's not tainted by yeah sort of the connotations of class warfare and all the rest of it that we keep having to kind of chuck it in the bin. Um, invent new words so yeah so shift the ground back to the economic um, and you know and that does involve a difficult conversation about identity politics I think and saying yes identity politics is essential but let's put that in a broader analysis um, about where power lies in the big picture and yeah and so not to mirror the culture wars on the left Number two, I think we need to think about how we reclaim mainstream political power. I know, yeah, so <laughs> given what happened in the last election, that's um, a sore point. But the last election, you know, anti-Semitism and Brexit are classic cu- culture war. Um, you know, that's that's how we lost. You know, what does that have to do with poverty and in- inequality? Either of those issues. Um so, but so, um, so we need to think about, we need to kind of re kind of regroup and reinvent our attitude to political institutions, you know, along the lines that I've, we've been talking about, about what we think about democratic institutions and kind of fall in love with them again in our own way. And then thirdly, I think we, the left needs to re-engage with culture say, yeah, to say it's not just the Roger Scruton's of this world who have a monopoly on the, the on beauty and truth. The right themselves have become ruthless, radical mon- modernizers, concreting over the green belt, slashing cultural budgets, you know, destroying the arts industries. Um, but the left, you know, has to find our way to defend those um, those values because I think that it's also an essential part of anti-work and anti-work culture and anti that determinism again that we've been talking about so how do we reclaim the non-instrumental 
and the enlightening, the enriching, the things that lift us out of the everyday and are not narrowly utilitarian. Perfect. Eliane, thank you so much. It's a great conversation. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. That's it for this week. My thanks to Eliane, whose book Elitism and Progressive Defence is out now. Keep your eyes peeled on the Navarra Media social feeds for bonus content from this interview this week. Otherwise, stay locked on Resonance 104.4 FM. I've been James Butler. This has been Navarra FM and it's good to be back. Bye-bye. This broadcast was brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.